the Sports Career Podcast, episode 292. How can athletes use self-awareness as a performance tool during and after their sports career? another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector of the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in high-performance sports or you want to pursue a career as an elite athlete. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, before I talk about this week's podcast special guest, if you're interested in starting a career in the sports industry with confidence, check out my free sports career mini course in seven modules you'll learn how to start and discover your sports career journey with passion head to education to sport forward slash mc for more information now getting back to today's episode this week's special guest is lawrence holstead lawrence is a two-time olympian and competed in the 2012 and 2016 olympics as an elite fencer now he is an author of a book called Become a True Athlete and currently he's the director of mentoring for the True Athlete Project where he works with elite athletes with regards to overall well-being and overall performance on and off the sports field. For that reason it's such a pleasure to have Lawrence as a podcast special guest and that's when today's episode Lawrence will share how self-awareness can be a great tool during and after an athlete's performance when competing at the highest level. Lawrence, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast show. Please share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Well, I mean, my career started, I guess, after university. I've been, I was a fencer for a long time, um, since the age of seven. So you can't really call that career, but it was my sporting career, I guess, from, from a young age. Um, played lots of different sports, but fencing was the one that, that just stuck with me and that I was, that I was the best at of all of those. So you know, that kind of sense of mastery and sense of that you're getting somewhere really, it really is motivational. So I, like I said, there's a series of kind of serendipitous uh, moments in my, along my career. And the first one came uh, when we won the bid for the, to host the London Olympics. And that was just around the time that I was graduating from university without really any idea of what I wanted to do in my life. Wow, right. Just quickly, though, just going back in time a little bit, I know I've had the privilege of reading your book and both your parents were fencers and the Olympians too, but with was it their influence that got you involved in the sport or did you just have a curiosity because they were competing? Because fencing, if you think of a UK perspective, isn't like soccer or I should say football or rugby. So I'm just curious of why that sport's such an early age. Yeah, well, it was because of my my parents, <laughs> quite clearly. Um, my mum used to run a, a kids' Saturday afternoon class, so it made sense that I turned up to that. And they they were also good friends with the uh, 
a Polish coach who was the coach of that club, but it was but was also basically the best coach in the country at the time. And I continued with him from the age of seven up until my first Olympic Games. He was he was an amazing amazing character who was equally good with seven year old kids as with top elite level athletes. Okay, and you said you did other sports as well. What other sports did you compete in whilst dabbling in fencing at the same time? I'm just curious. So the the one I did most alongside it was rugby. So they're quite different sports, but I loved loved playing rugby all through school, played club rugby, county level. And there was a point at which I was kind of having to make a decision, am I going to follow rugby or fencing? And it was it was a few things in it, but I, I think the fact that I was just I was at national level in fencing and and uh, that was probably the the thing that tipped it. But I I actually continued playing rugby a bit later. Took took it up at university again. Um, so that was a big part of my life. Wow. Okay. Can we tap into that because I've had other athletes on here. Uh, ben Gollings, who's actually a rugby sevens player, he did a lot of football and it's all, talked about his footwork. That helped him be a great kicker in the sevens game. So I'm just curious, was there any skills in rugby that helped you in fencing in any part of it? Um, not just the physical side, but maybe the mental side. I'm, gosh, this is an interesting conversation, but I'm just intrigued from the rugby connection with fencing as well. Yeah, well, actually, funnily that it's, I don't think so much about the physical kind of crossover. It's probably I've got some good kind of rounded physical skills but I think of it much more from a mental perspective of the kind of that toughness that rugby builds I definitely saw most that set me apart in the fencing world that they're all a bit soft I think in fencing and I came in with this kind of rugby attitude that a bit a bit like a warrior attitude that you didn't find so much in fencing so I I really I took a lot from that over into my fencing that helped me so like embracing a tackle for example and that sort of warrior aspect just to give the listeners a bit of a picture is that what you mean in that side of thing yeah yeah going going head first into a tackle like putting your body on the line and you don't get that chance in fencing but you you get small moments so there's sometimes there's physical contact there's just small moments where that comes into play where the the physicality of kind of who you are and like stepping in rather than fearing it is is helpful and I was known for that and just from a young athlete listening in or a parent, may I ask, like, when was that definitive decision to follow fencing then rugby? Because I think when I've listened to other athletes on the show, they always say, like, just try different sports when young. But there must be a point where a decision needs to be made that I want to pursue this sport at the highest level of their ability. So I'm just curious of what age did you make the decision of fencing is going to be the priority sport? Yeah, well, I made that decision when I left school because that was where I had to decide to join a kind of senior club or not. And I, yeah, that was that was the point. But interestingly, I took that was I had one more year left in my my junior career in fencing, so I continued that. Went to university and actually stopped fencing for two years at university. This is a, a slightly unusual part of my fencing journey. I. When I first turned into turned to a senior, I stopped and played rugby again. So I, my second two years of uni were were playing rugby and not fencing at all, and that's very unusual because usually that that transition from junior to senior is incredibly difficult and it takes years to get up to speed and and most people kind of really dig in at that point. But that's when I I, I stepped back from fencing, took up rugby again, and had an amazing time. Wow. Okay. 
how did you prepare for that first Olympics or, you know, that process then? I had six years to train for the Olympics after that. So I, that period was, yeah, took a break from fencing for, for two, my last two years at university, just to kind of experience university in its fullest and play rugby. Then I hung up my rugby boots again. That was the serendipitous moment that there was fine. There was suddenly a, a, a full-time contract to be a professional fencer in the UK where there never had been before because of the, the bid that, that we'd won for the Olympics because we, we were going to have host nation places in the Olympics. So the UK government was, was basically supporting every sport that was going to qualify and we were one. So an amazing opportunity. I'd just graduated. No idea really what I was going to do, but they said, well, do you want to be a professional fencer? Wow. Okay, so could we decode that planning from you taking that decision to then get into 2012? Because I still remember that event um, in my mind. And I'm just curious of that sort of preparation cycle. Do you get into that Olympics? Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's still very vivid in my mind, obviously, as well. It was just it was an incredible period in life. I mean, to... Like I said, we we never had there was never an option to be a professional fencer in the UK before that. So I hadn't really I wanted to to see where I could get to, but I had never really thought about being a professional because that just wasn't really on the cards. So when it became an opportunity, graduated 2007, let's say I started six, seven, started as a professional athlete. And then suddenly I'm living this kind of dream life of traveling around the world, training every day nothing else naps on the sofa that's the only other thing that i really needed to do uh and yeah and just kind of had these six years kind of lay, laid out ahead of us where there was going to be an olympics at the end and that's a very rare thing as well because most athletes i mean every other athlete other than the host nation places they you don't know you're going to qualify for an olympics and uh and we did we knew we would have a team i was by then i was generally kind of number one or two in the country. So and we have a team of four. So I was, I felt pretty solid that, that I was going to be in that team. So, but it's also an incredibly strange experience to work for six years to something kind of so big and so kind of intense at the end of it, but it just, it just comes so slowly that time just takes forever. So um, we kind of, we shifted around our training base. We slowly professionalized. We were an entirely amateur kind of setup at the beginning, and we had to become a professional setup. We we, went, we didn't want to just be a host kind of host nation quota place in the Olympics. We wanted to to go for a medal. Um, so we had a lot of work to do to to professionalize what we were doing and 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 get up to speed. So that kind of was generally going to plan. I had some some pretty great results reasonably early on after i guess after a couple of years of being a full-time athlete um broke into the top 16 of the world we have that's kind of a in fencing that's a there's a delineation of the top 16 are kind of they're a thing and then everybody else wants to get into the top 16 so um me and my teammate we were both in the top 16 at points um and then and then came this the, the real roller coaster of this period, because in the first training session of the of the Olympic year, we got all the way up to to the Olympic year 2012, and I the first training session back in, in January, I tripped over and broke my wrist on my sword arm, 
and suddenly uh, kind of everything everything flipped on its head and i had to take four months out of training of, of fencing training uh had two surgeries on my wrist and had a cast on it and that took me from january till may and our olympic selection was in june so it was an it was an incredibly dark period wow i want to touch on that but just going back a little bit just because you said this is the first time sort of ever being a professional fencer you said it was a slow process of getting professional could you describe what you mean is it mean having the right support system having the right mindset as a team or as a group of you getting to olympics i just want people to learn that it does take time to have that elitism built in from a system perspective but also mindset perspective of the individual if that makes sense yeah absolutely it's spot on because we we we'd just come into working with the English Institute of Sport, so they had we started working with sports psychologists, physios. Um, didn't hadn't really had that before. We hadn't had a national setup before. So how does it work when we're all together from different clubs training together every day under one coach? There's some kind of political elements to it, but also just kind of a mindset shift. I'd just come out from university, rugby atmosphere, rugby culture. So I was still, I was training full time. I was still going out on the weekend, seeing my mates and, and getting drunk. And that doesn't cut it. That for the first year or so, I thought, this is brilliant. I can have my cake and eat it. I can do everything. And I was getting sick and just not getting the most out of my training. So there was just a, and I think I was, I was the only one there. My teammates were probably more professional than me in that, but but everyone was kind of coming from a different place of amateurism or whatever their their system had been. So everyone had to kind of find their own route to a much more disciplined approach. And we had a group of about 12, 12 guys in our senior, in our, in our team. Uh, and we all had to kind of find our way to this more disciplined approach as a, as a squad. Um, yeah, we had to find our base. We'd move shifted around a couple of times, that kind of thing. Um, and we just had to we had to build our bodies up really i mean we'd never done full-time training so it's really difficult to get into world-class shape unless you're training full-time and that took a good two years uh, two or three years i'd say of really kind of grounded foundational work until i felt like i I was in world-class physical shape like i i couldn't do more than one or two chin-ups i think when i started i'm kind of heavy anyway but that's that wasn't cool going into the gym at the EIS and not being able to do more than a couple of chin-ups. Uh, so there was just, there's just everything that kind of has to fit in and you're, you're getting little niggles, you're getting injuries, you're getting sick along the way. So it doesn't just, it's never a straight path. Just reflecting what the learning lessons from that have supported you now. Well, it's, it's given me a, a I think one of the the real benefits I've had is kind of moving from this amateur to an, a, a, a real elite system, a real professionalized system. I've seen, I kind of understand both worlds. It's not like I was in a, in a football academy where you're just professionalized all the way through. I've seen what it what it takes to be the amateur and how it how it feels. So that's the majority of the sports world is in that place. Amateur trying to make it, trying to be as good as you can be. Um, and I've seen that journey and just kind of how many steps and how fraught it is along the way and how many pitfalls there are. 
So it's just given me a great understanding, I think, and a, a bit of an empathy for those who are still on that journey, who aren't quite at the professional level. Um, just how how difficult it is to to get to the like. We I probably actually thought that I was at world class level in some of those things after three years, but it it was in some certainly it took another another three on top of that. It was only just before the Olympics that some that it all really kind of came together, and we felt like. Okay, we are we're a world class team now. Okay, before we talk about the wrist injury, because that's really significant also in your book. But I just want to clarify, and this is curiosity. You've got the amateur level, we've got the world class level. Like, how do we close that gap? Like, is it the discipline? Is it having processes, or is it having the patience of just following a process to let your performance gradually get to that world class level? Because, or is it just the mindset? I don't know. Like, I'm just curious of that closing that gap aspect. And hopefully it can help a listener who's a young athlete too. Yeah, but it's all it's all the all the above of what you mentioned. Um to to really get world class, it is incredibly difficult if you have to do if you have real other other things really pulling on your time. So probably you could do it with the university alongside, but I've seen it, people try, athletes try with university and a job alongside and trying to make it. So the first thing is just having the, the, the time the space the mental space to to dedicate to the sport um definitely you want some other things in your life but when there's when there's too much else then like if you have a full-time job alongside it super hard and that's just because you you just need you need things like you need the rest you need you need recovery you need to put in the hours of the training but there's inevitably there's family and friends and kind of other things alongside it so that's just one kind of practical side of things you need the, the space in your life to be able to dedicate to it and then absolutely a dis of, of an amount of discipline is really at the heart of it being disciplined enough to to really kind of go on that journey of discovery in yourself to 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 leave no stone on stone unturned in making making yourself better and that's mentally and physically and technically tactically so those kind of four four corners are they require an incredible amount of kind of humility and uh and attention and if you leave any of them unturned or you're not quite that you're not that interested in the tactical side or in the mental side you're just you're making it a lot harder of yourself and less likely to get there um and if, at the heart of that is this discipline to a discipline maybe a curiosity and a uh and a, a, a humility to to know that you don't know it all and some young athletes struggle with that they think they know a lot at the beginning um but you generally if you make it to world class you see just how many kind of transformations you go through to get there so you, like your your mindset will be transforming your physical body will be transforming um your, your tactics you'll probably change your tactics multiple times because it fits who you are and your maturity level um so if you if you go in as an 18 year old thinking well i'm pretty fit i know how to play this game and i'm reasonably confident like so I let, i'll just turn up and play it's not going to get you there you need to you need to drive to to figure out how to make yourself better and better and better i hope people are taking notes but i just want to go back to that wrist injury because i've had other athletes um there's one julia simic she did her acl and she was out for a very long time and one thing she said was the loneliness of being injured. Um, and she was a, a soccer player. So 
she wasn't part of the team anymore. She was just with the other rehab staff getting her back to fitness. May I ask, was that similar or when you get injured, that loneliness, because you said it was a dark period, was it the loneliness that made it dark and figuring out how to get back, particularly with the, I'm going to say this word, pressure of 2012 that were coming up? Yeah, the, the, there's definitely an element of, of loneliness in it that you're suddenly just kind of ripped out of your training group and you're not a part of that anymore. I had a an amazing SNC strength and conditioning coach that I worked with every day guy called Reese Ingram who just kind of kept me kept me in the game and kept my my spirits up so I had somewhere to go every day and someone to meet and be with physio as well great physio um the the bit that made it really kind of dark was this this thing that I could see my teammates training on the other side of the hall every day getting better working towards their olympics and see my kind of dream like slowly disappearing so there's a real resentment in me and a kind of bitterness I, I was really kind of so sorry for myself like why me I mean my first proper injury comes in the Olympic year and I was just I had my place guaranteed and now I'm gonna have nothing so it was a I really got kind of fell into all sorts of those negative mental traps I was gonna say um how did you overcome them reflecting now it's happened but I'm just curious well that period was also one of the the most pivotal kind of moments in my life and what I did in that right then was has has had has reverberated continues to kind of affect me I'd say almost in my daily life because of what I'm working with now and how I kind of the approach I have now so I I got connected I started working with a, a wonderful sports psychologist so this is really a story about how your kind of village your 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 support can 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 bring you through but bring you through in a better place so i had the, the snc the physio who helped me in that side and then i had this sports psychologist called katie katie warner who was the first sports psych that i'd ever worked with that really inspired me about the kind of the the role and the the power of working with your mind uh and she uh, yeah she was brought in kind of especially for me because i was clearly on this in this dark place and we needed some help for me and um we started working with with my values basically we kind of laid out what my values were and how i could start to live by my values rather than get wrapped up in this olympics that i'm that might never be i didn't know if i was going to qualify i didn't know if i was even going to get back to a fencing level once i'd kind of gotten over the the injury in by that summer or even ever um so there was so many unknowns so we had to kind of bring it back to what, how did i want to live and how do i want to what was my best self how could i live up to that and we did about six months of really intense work together on on that and various other things we worked on steve we used steve peter's chimp paradox chimp, chimp model she was kind of working with him at the time so that was the, the model we were using um and it was just an incredibly effective time and eventually it, it took some some time and but eventually I got to a place where I really could be could be proud of the way that I was eventually behaving I I got back to to fitness just in time I got selected for the team but not in the quite the way that I wanted because I was selected as the the substitute the reserve for the team event and not for the individual so my dreams of being Olympic champion as an individual they, they were burst but I still got to compete. I got to compete with my team. And and really, I was, in the end, proud of the teammate that I could be for them in that kind of run-up to the Olympics. Though 
though not in the in the first few months of that of that injury. I'm putting you on the spot now, but how do you control that inner chimp now? Because I, it's a great book from that Steve Peters, so I'm just curious. How do you mean? How do I do it now in my life now? Yeah, with or... the, yeah, like no, like the inner chimp. You mm. know, with the chimp paradox, it's all about controlling that image. Chip, you know, inner chimp. He uses that. Where's the banana to keep the inner chimp happy? Like I'm just curious of how, with regards to the Steve Peters sort of philosophy, how you use it now to this day. Because I love the ending of you said to be a good team player, and not let an ego get away of the individual performance. So that's controlling in in a chimp, isn't it? The inner ego of ourselves. So I'm just curious till this day, like how do you use it in the work you do? Well, I mean it's that that and i see it kind of tying in with mindfulness because that's also a, a very strong tool for kind of keeping the ego in check and and behaving in ways that you'd like to um there i'd say they're the, the the parts of my life that kind of help me the most now parts of uh, parts of my my athletic training that helped me the most in my life as it is now in my career and my family life just because there's there's nothing more powerful than being able to just have a bit more kind of control over your responses, your reactions, and not just re- react in in kind of automation based on what your chimps throwing at you. And so that that period was just an incredible foundation in yeah in learning how to control my chimp. And it's a really brilliant model. I really appreciate the model of kind of the C. Peters set, sets out, it made a lot of sense to me and it worked for me really well. Um, I know it, it's not everyone, on, on everyone, the top of everyone's list, but um, for me, it was brilliant. And so after, after, after a, a certain period, probably about a year of working with that, I found that my chimp was just not, was not speaking up nearly as much. I was kind of just quiet. It wasn't throwing me any, any crap anymore so my i was just much more kind of clear-headed to to perform um and now i've just i've that's kept on i think i've i i'm very i'm very able to kind of notice when my emotions are bubbling up and when there's something that's coming that i i don't how i wouldn't want to respond that i can i can kind of notice it and not not respond in that way kind of choose my path forward Wow, I love that. And I hope the listeners are enjoying this conversation as much as I am. I want to talk about now today's podcast topic because it's sort of been relatable throughout the whole conversation about the importance of self-awareness. So may I ask like the benefits of self-awareness for an athlete during and sort of after their career, like how it can be used as a tool? Yeah, I mean, self-awareness, there's various elements to self-awareness. And the the people think about kind of emotional intelligence or how you're perceived by others, the, the ways that the really the aspects of it that really have struck me most are around knowing your values. So an awareness of what you value about yourself and about the sport or the life you're living and, and an awareness, a mindful awareness of what's happening for you right now in this moment, in your body, in your mind, what's, what's just, what's your experience right now. And those two things combined, I think are, if you, if anybody, but especially young athletes, can work on those two, there has an, it has a profound impact on on performance and life long after after sport. So that idea of knowing your values gives you the sense that the true you, the kind of the, the person that you really care about and that your friends and family love, doesn't change whether you win or lose in a 
football match or a cricket match that you you you're just your job is just to try and live up to those values and that's how you can be proud of your performance and your your kind of experience in in your sport and that's just my experience of that was it just gave me an incredible freedom to that, that there wasn't anything really important riding on on this match on my performance here so i could just kind of approach it out of joy out of the love of doing it the love of wanting to to see if i can get the best out of myself and it was an incredibly freeing everyone knows that to perform more free with more freedom is a is a good performance you don't want to be locked in and anxious and tight so that's a, a level of self-awareness that I found incredibly important. I am going to be mentioning about your book very, very shortly, but because I've had the privilege of reading it, relating to that self-awareness bit, does that relate to that performance in Rio when you're 8-1 down? Because you shared in the book of like, yes, you're 8-1 down, but you didn't panic. You just sort of said, actually, till this day, it's one of my best and proudest performances. So is that what you mean about having that self-awareness of that freedom of performance despite the result would you mind just sharing that experience yeah so it was just it's just stands out as one of the most kind of it's a it's a highlight in a way is a match that i lost in in the olympics which so it's strange to say it's a highlight but it's a highlight because it it shows so clearly the kind of transformation that i'd been through from a really anxious competitor like like most young athletes are kind of anxious not to lose hating losing like like really kind of yeah nerves and and dark feelings if you lose to this place where i was i was kind of on the brink of being humiliated in my olympic in my first in my olympic individual debut um and there was none of that experience of kind of negative kind of anxiety or or even thoughts about what if what if I lose this 15-1? So fencing matches go up to 15. I was losing 8-1. It's pretty, pretty dire straits. There was no none of those thoughts of what if, how bad will this be? Oh, I'm going to be terrible. It's just, it was all centered on how am I going to figure this out? What do I need to do now? And how do I get back on track? And there was a, it was just with kind of pure energy and motivation and kind of yeah, just a, a purely positive experience. And that came that was born from this work that I did with with Katie on on my values and how I can live my only job was to live up to my values it, it really wasn't going to matter if I lost 15-1 only if I kept trying kept sticking to my game plan kept trying to figure out what to do gave everything I could then it really didn't matter if I lost embarrassingly and it didn't I I came back right right back into the match I caught caught up with him and and ended up losing a much closer match but um, it was just that experience of performance that was so alien to that 18-year-old, kind of 21-year-old self. So can we touch on your book? Because I think this is a perfect time. Could you just share what inspired you to write a book all about becoming a true athlete and what that does that really mean as well? Yeah, well, the inspiration is because I joined a, a wonderful charity called The True Athlete Project. And this was in 2016 after I retired after Rio and, and joined this, this charity as the the director of mentoring so i run mentoring programs for athletes so if anyone's listening you can check it out um we match elite level olympic paralympic level athletes mentors with young aspiring committed mentees and uh and we have we have this that's just one of the, the many programs that we run at all levels of sport and we have a 
quite a kind of grounded comprehensive philosophy for athletic development and what sports should be and is is all about really we our mission is to create a more compassionate culture of sport both because that's just what sport unleashes more of sports potential but it's that's how we get more enjoyment and even better performances out of it and we just always talked me and our, our ceo sam had talked often about kind of creating a little manifesto about what we believe and what we think about the sports world and that at one point turned like, wrote a structure for that and then thought that this this could be a book and then um spoke to a wonderful publisher called sequoia and they got behind it so uh so that was kind of the, the inspiration came from the charity and the work that we've been doing and kind of all these people that have been the olympians paralympians elite level younger athletes and just knowing that this is an approach that that is the way forward for sport and what it is is really we believe that sport can be an incredible force for good in the world both on an individual level psychological physical health and societal level but it way too often doesn't live up to that kind of value proposition and the reason is that we've kind of lost track of what sports true value and meaning is and we've just gone straight down a kind of business model win at all costs results and profit model so everything is about the results of sport even at kids level sport it's all about results and it just that takes away all the joy and the freedom and the 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 that joyful experience that flowing experience uh and we want to get back to that and so we propose that we can propose this idea of a world of, of true athletes who are more in touch with the true value of sport and of, of that kind of the joy of, of participation and finding mastery and flow and the community and the relationships that they build um and i kind of point to four true athlete virtues that are tend to be missing from for most athletic kind of environments or athletes athletes pathways that are absolutely essential to living a kind of fulfilled life and a happy life but also to having a a good uh a good rounded healthy experience of sport and that will improve performance as well so just quickly they are responsibility compassion awareness and integrity and the idea is that you could become world champion without any of those virtues really you probably look at lance armstrong has no integrity and he made it to as high as he can so you you don't have to have those virtues to make it to the top of your sport but if you get there without those you're you're going to find yourself bereft you're going to find yourself find out that the the path was not really worth it like we're hearing from a lot of top top level athletes who are depressed or would rather give up their medals if they if they didn't have to go through the system that they did so that's that's it in a nutshell Ed. no it's a wonderful book and thank you for sharing those sort of values within the book and there's actually one quote i want to share because i keep reading it even in how i do my podcast now even when i look at my performance and it does probably relate to your performance in Rio with the Gossip Square, it says, you said this in the book, every performance should be viewed as an opportunity to gain information and feedback. Could you just emphasize that quote, what you mean, but also the power of looking at a performance as a process then, like you said, the end result? 
Yeah, and this is something that I I feel is a bit of a superpower in my life after sport as well, because I think everybody else seems to think that everything you do is a kind of uh, is a product in itself and you'll be judged on that product and if it's good then you're good and if it's bad then you're bad but i have this approach from sport now from that those experiences in sport that that really it doesn't matter how my performance is like what i've just done in that sense the result of it, it has no real impact like, it doesn't matter as long as i've given what i what i wanted to that project or that product whatever it is and as long as i take something from it and and learn and and get some feedback that helps me be better next time so i i don't suffer any of the that kind of i don't suffer in the fear of of making mistakes or doing something wrong um i i still try and do the best job i can so there's there's that i still want to do a good job but i i also don't suffer anything if if something doesn't quite go to plan or it if if I've messed up in some way, I I also don't kind of take it with me and and suffer with that either. So because it's really not about the result; it's about the process. It's about the input. What have you done to put into it? Like, can you be proud of that? And then what can you take out of it at the other end? And amazingly, those are the two important things. And what we seem to have landed on as a culture is the the really insignificant thing is the most important thing for us. So the whatever the result is, whether it worked or didn't work, is the only thing that matters. And those other things are kind of by the by, but that's that's the opposite of how it should be. The process, your input, and what you take out of it are the most important things. So just in like an example perspective, because I always like to talk, talk to the knowledge, I and mean, I like to just give an example. So we could use, let's say, goal setting. Like you set the goal, what you want to achieve, but actually the goal isn't just achieving that goal, it's the growth of how you achieve the goal goal is that what you mean of you know using goal setting as the method of that process yeah i mean goal setting is is brilliant for for motivation and for kind of guiding you to kind of get you get you on track but but it really can't be about just about whether you achieve the goal or not because there's so many other factors involved and in sport we know this your goal can can be messed up from all kinds of ways my injury could have been slightly worse and my whole olympics could have disappeared out of my hands really or just a freak accident so yeah the, i think that i heard yesterday on a podcast a wonderful comment it was a bit more philosophical but it was it was about this the idea that the really um, huge goals are only powerful in in as much as they they haven't been achieved because they're driving you towards them as soon as you achieve them you realize they don't they haven't really given you what you hope for. Like they don't like those Olympic those, those athletes who just think their whole life is going to be roses if they win the Olympic gold, and then they win it, and they find it's not even that special, and they're over it within a week. Like the the power of the goal has driven them to do incredible things to reach it. As soon as they reached it, then it doesn't really mean the same thing. So if your focus is only on the result, only on the medal. Then you're missing out on what the real value is, what the real gold was, which was all of that stuff that you're doing before. So, yeah, just having that awareness. Everyone, I think everyone really needs to have the awareness that the true, the goal is amazing because it drives you there. But the the goal is not the goal. The the goal is the journey and and what you take out of the other side, the reflections you take from the other side. 
Absolutely. And I'm still learning this myself, by the way, for the listeners listening in. Another area of the book I want to touch on, because I really enjoyed it just from a different perspective, is ego versus responsibility. Like you say, it's one of those values within the book. But when you talked about ego and responsibility, I was like, wow, I haven't seen it in that sort of perspective in a way, because we all need that little bit of ego, which I bracket confidence when controlled right. But would you mind just sharing like what ego means to you and versus the responsibility of being a great athlete yeah the i've been thinking about the the ego point a lot recently um and it's i think we it's another misconception we have in sport that we need you need to be a big ego to succeed because it kind of correlates like you said with confidence and verging on arrogance which can be a good thing in certain contexts in sport and i've felt that myself like a little bit of arrogance has helped me but actually, I think in the in the long term and and just in a more realistic sense, the ego is far more damaging to us being able to perform well, because the ego is the thing that puts up armor, puts up defenses. In if we're starting to lose, it starts kind of pulling back a bit. Like I don't want to be hurt by this. The the ego is the thing that really puts up barriers. And if you think about the absolute peak of sporting performance, is this this feeling of being in flow, of being in the zone the central kind of tenet of being in flow is a dissociation of ego there is no ego you're you're not even kind of feeling yourself anymore your 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 self identity disappears and you're just almost at one with the with the task with the activity flow state the flow state yeah so it's a particular state that is has been tested kind of been mixed, like measured and tested or just like uh, researched very thoroughly and it's very clear that your sense of self disappears when you're in, in a flow state. And if we're trying to get, I mean, every athlete who's experienced a flow state wants to get there. I mean, that is just the, the greatest feeling you have in sport. So everyone wants to get that feeling every time they play, if possible. It's not really possible, but have as much as possible. So if we're trying to get there, what the goal is to, to leave the ego behind, is to drop the ego. And actually what we, a lot of our kind of the, the strategies we use, the tools we use is trying to build up the ego, is trying to kind of pump us up, get confidence. But there, there, there's another way, and I'm talking about this with, with a couple of people and about running some, some workshops, especially on how to, how to let go of the ego in order to access this kind of free place where, where there isn't a, there isn't a, a gold medal dangling over you or the loss dangling over you. It's only you and the performance and this kind of joy of, of being present with, with the task. Um, and we kind of summed it up. I thought it was quite nice that we, in sport, you always, everyone's kind of striving to be somebody, to like become somebody in sport. But really, the flow state is about becoming nobody. You're, because you're not yourself anymore. What we should be striving to do is to become nobody. And that's where the best, the greatest performances will come from. Wow, that's a cool perspective. No, I agree. Because you're disconnecting the emotion from the performance. You're just focusing on what you're good at from a skill set. That's cool. And there's one final part of the book I want to mention, because I think that, you know, if you're a young athlete, you need to read it. Because my goodness, I wish I had this studying sport, let alone have the aspirations to be an athlete myself like is the mindfulness you mentioned this word already and you said it supported you very early on like 
from being that elite athlete or world-class you said like mindset but in the book you talked about like meditation quite a lot and actually throughout the book that sort of mindfulness flows as well reflecting like how vital is that now even in your performance of mentoring other athletes of being patient now with athletes from a mental standpoint but I just want you to share if you wouldn't mind like the power of mindfulness isn't just when you perform as an athlete but actually it can be applied to a daily practice yeah so the the true athlete project is all of our programs have a thread of mindfulness running through them and our, our mentoring program all the mentors and mentees go through a six-week mindfulness course um it's a very really special part of the program um we're starting to see that mindfulness is becoming a kind of it's an essential part of an athlete's training routine and the sports psychologist that i work with is a kind of non-negotiable when they work with athletes that they're, they're going to do mindfulness training and it's because it's it occupies this space that there, there's no other way really kind of tested proven way of improving your concentration and your focus than mindfulness no better way certainly we all know just how important it is to be focused in our performance and there, there's no other way that does it that we can that we know other than than mindfulness training so there's, there's that that it's a really just a, it's a hard skill of like it's one of these incredibly important skills of just training our, our our focus and concentration it also has these amazing kind of other physical and mental health benefits um i mean they they've been proven just just an incredible array of kind of it, it's not just about relaxing you but about just giving you kind of space in your mind and we've talked about about that kind of chimp the chimp approach where you can start to choose your path forward rather than just respond and react and there's a wonderful quote by uh, a psychotherapist called Viktor Frankl, which is a, there's a there's a space between a stimulus and your response. So when something happens in you or to you and how you respond to it, there's a space, and in that space is lies all of human power and potential. And what mindfulness does is just kind of expands and gives you some some skill to 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 admit to work within that space. So it really is a tool like no other that I could practice like no other. It leads us, it, it is the route into our greatest potential and power. And that can be, that can be done. That can be exhibited in your sporting performance to just uh, allow you to kind of get through that fog of, uh, yeah, of the emotions that arise in, in performance and, and choose a good path to concentrate better, to forgive yourself quicker when you make mistakes but it is the thing that I I feel I feel I use most in my life after sport, or I benefit most from in my life after sport. In my family, I've got two young kids. It just requires an incredible amount of awareness of what's bubbling up inside you and and patience. Um, in my life, in my work, my previous work as a performance director, just the constant need like things that come at you that that would otherwise get a, a response from you that you don't necessarily want to give. So it's really, it is, I think it's an essential part of any athlete's toolbox. And if you're not doing it, then, then there's a stone on left unturned. Okay. If you don't mind, I'm going to be a bit cheeky. Would you mind just sharing one tool you use to, with regards to mindfulness? So for example, what I do is breathing techniques and I go for a walk just to get in that state of clearing out, the junk in my head to them focusing on the next thing so there is a couple i use um but i was wondering what 
you use as tools with regards to this mindfulness i'm just curious do you want my sharing at least one yeah well i mean i i still do sometimes but the thing that the the exercise that i used most as an athlete and have done most with athletes is the the body scan because it has a really great kind of restorative effect for your body so at the end of a training session i'd, I'd do a body scan where you basically you you would you can find a recording online on youtube easily there's tons of them but you basically start focusing on specific parts of your body and kind of shifting after a period from your foot to your lower leg to your knees to your thighs and kind of shifting your focus like a bit of it like a laser beam at each body part and just noticing how it feels and what the, the experience of that body part is it's a simple practice but it, it's it's just has incredible kind of quite profound effects on it and it's a it's it's really it's, it can be really relaxing if you do it at night and it can send you to sleep or if you do it straight after a training session it it can help your recovery and it just shows you that your mind i think one of the most important parts of mindfulness training for athletes is it just shows you that your your focus is something that can be directed that it's not just kind of off in whatever direction something's calling you you can shift your focus and it changes your experience so if you have it's very it's very clear you're straight after training your body's pumping full of blood and you're feeling warm and you're sweaty you can focus on your foot and there's like there's some experience there and it might be a bit kind of sore because you've been training on it as soon as you shift your focus to your to your lower leg or your ankle and you really focus there, your foot disappears. That experience of your foot is completely gone and you're now zoomed in on this new experience. So that kind of how your experience of yourself and your body and, and what's going on in your head moves as you direct your attention is, in, is really powerful. Really relates to today's podcast topic of that self-awareness factor as well. That's cool. I like that one, the body scan. Out of interest, Lawrence, like what have you enjoyed the most from your career looking back right now? This is a nice question and it ties into what they're kind of my what I was talking about earlier about the true value and meaning of sport because I when I look back yeah a couple of the, the results pop out for me not they, they were there were results but actually there were more performances because there were these experiences of flow but really what I think about is the people that I was on this journey with the places that we were going we had an incredible world tour we would go to to Shanghai and Tokyo and Havana and all these places each year and get to do that with a bunch of friends and friends from other countries that I'd get to meet in each of these places, go and explore this culture because we'd often be for a week in Japan or more if there's a training camp. Um, so, and, and, those ex and the experiences like I had before London, which was that dark time, but I, I came through with an incredible with help from incredible people so that kind of the growth that you go through the transformation the experiences that you get and the, the people that you're you're doing it with those are the things that i look back on and just think how how incredibly lucky i was the the sport was amazing in itself because i loved doing sport and when it was at my best it, they were the most they were the moments of the most joy and kind of uh, closest to my true to human true nature in my life but but really those were kind of sporadic and here and there the real the real stuff was was everything else like i just mentioned yeah i can sort of tell with your tonality it's it's all about the experience the full picture experience which i think i've learned from you just now what you've just said 
out of interest, I always like to finish with an inspirational question. My goodness, we talked to depth on different aspects of self-awareness. We talked about the book, which I hope people will check it out. But just from going back to the self-awareness part, would you mind just sharing three tips which the listeners can apply straight away after listening to this so they can improve it in their performance, not just an athlete, but all walks of life. Like you mentioned of being a father, of like being patient with your children. Like I just would love you just to share your, your three top tips with regards to that self-awareness of being better. Yeah, so I think there's no avoiding that beginning a mindfulness journey is the number one for self-awareness and for everything else in life. Just that's, that's the first place. And starting with just a, like you said, a simple breathing meditation where you just focus on your breath. Nice to get a, if you're just starting out, find a, a course, a free online course, or find some guided meditations and just start like that. That's, that's the first one. The second one is to explore your values. And again, it helps to have somebody to, to help you go through it or, or at least as an exercise that helps you go through it um, you can find those online as well and the third one for for self-awareness I've done bits of this in, in my life but I know that it's in, it's just there's nothing quite like it is journaling so not just kind of training log training diaries but journaling on you could do gratitude journaling is quite a, quite a powerful one just at the end of each day, you, you write down a few things, that three to five things that you were grateful for from that day. It could be just journaling about your experiences from the day. Um, there's something that journaling connects to us in a very you know, kind of very rooted way that it, it lets things out that we didn't quite know were there. And when you look back over your journal entries, it gives you insight into yourself. So that's a, that's a, third, a third pillar, I'd say. Absolutely. I, I journal with the gratitude of the evening and it's amazing when you just put ink to paper, the magic happens there. Like that's what I always say to people who haven't done it before, because it's like you say, it's just releasing all those thoughts that you've kept in your mind, uh, good and bad. But I try and uh, use the gratitude to to finish on an end of the day win. So look, I hope people put those tips into place and hope you find them helpful too with regards to your daily practice of self-awareness as well. Out of interest, Lawrence, how can people interact with you online? Like where's the best place to go? You can find me and more stuff about me on my website, lawrencehalstead.com, or on Twitter at Lawrence Halstead. I'm on LinkedIn. Those are those are probably the three best places. I'm happy for anyone to reach out if you're interested in what we've been talking about. Love to hear from people. Amazing. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website with regards to this podcast. Lawrence, has been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Ed. What a wonderful conversation with Lawrence. I could honestly talk another hour. That's how much I enjoyed it. For me, I hope you've got a better understanding of how self-awareness can be a tool. And I mean that word a tool, that you can use it if you're an athlete or you can use it after a career in sport or even if you are not an athlete but you work in the sports industry and you want to use this tool to support your overall development. For me, it's subjects like this with regards to mindfulness, which we discussed, understanding breathing techniques, understanding ego with regards to confidence. All these little aspects influence our performance, particularly the conversation I enjoyed the most was that flow state of how we can just perform without thinking 
to our best ability. And you can tell when Lawrence was describing that through his performances through fencing, it was just like he was unstoppable with regards to what he was trying to achieve in that performance. So I really do hope you've enjoyed this conversation. And with regards to the true athlete, there are links in the show notes where you can grab your copy and just check out more information about the work he's doing with regards to the mentoring side of athletes, because I think this is just as important too. Uh, I said to Lawrence after I read his book the first time, my goodness, I wish I had this when I was in my early teenagers, because sometimes we have so much going on of what we want to achieve as a young athlete without looking at the values aspect. Like you can tell when Lawrence got a psychologist on board just going through the values of why he wanted to be a fencer, how it gave him more clarity. And it's little tips, tricks, methods like that, which can just elevate a performance in a short period of time. And then look, right at the end, uh, with regards to some tips of improving your self-awareness in your current performance in the work you do, or if you're an athlete, I hope you put some of them to practice. If you haven't journaled, give that a go. If you haven't done a mindfulness-free mini-course, give that a go. I think that's the biggest thing I want to say to you is give this a go. Because when I've interviewed more athletes on this podcast, it's amazing that one of their secret weapons is how they utilize self-awareness. So I hope you can, straight off this podcast chat, by put it into practice to your personal development now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Lawrence said, every performance should be viewed as an opportunity to gain information and feedback into the process to decide what to work on and what to improve going forward.